Tired of asking why? Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast, where we are answering life's most difficult questions. Now, here's your host, Teresa Blaze. Welcome to the Unresolved Life Podcast. I'm Teresa Blaze, and today I've got Mr. Dave Janda with me. Now, I heard him on the Hagman and Hagman Report. I'll tell you, if you guys want another podcast to listen to after this one, anything that they do, anything that, that, that they do, their associated podcast is a must listen. Dave, welcome to the show. Teresa, it's an honor to be a part of your platform. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, you're very welcome. Can you tell our audience a little bit about, about yourself and a little bit about what you do now? I'd be happy to. Um, I am a retired orthopedic surgeon. For uh, I uh, grew up in the city of Chicago and uh, attended Bucknell University in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, obtained uh, my bachelor's degrees in chemistry and economics. And then I went on to medical school at Northwestern University in Chicago and obtained my MD degree. And then I uh, took the trek to Michigan, and I did my internship and residency at the University of Michigan in orthopedic surgery. That was a five-year commitment. And when I was done with my residency, I then went to Canada to do a sports medicine and shoulder reconstructive surgery fellowship under the direction of, um, at the time, and even to this day, the most prominent sports medicine, shoulder reconstructive surgeon in the world, that being Richard Hawkins. And I was at the University of Western Ontario and, and did my fellowship there. Now, Teresa, when I went there to do my fellowship, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to learn more information on shoulder reconstructive surgery issues. I'm going to do more on sports medicine, which I did. But where I got an unbelievable education was on actually a national healthcare approach. I, Canada being a national healthcare system, that's where I really started to focus in on healthcare policy. When I returned from my fellowship, I joined a nine-member orthopedic group in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which I stayed with for 27 years. And I retired on January 1st, 2017. There are a number of reasons why I retired, but the, the most prominent being the fact that um, in addition to being old, um, I probably could have gone another five or six years easily. But I retired because I did not like the way the healthcare delivery system was going, and I felt that on an ethical basis, I could no longer participate in the system as a, as a provider uh, based on what was happening here in the United States with the government involvement and what they wanted us to do, or if I will, what, what I should say, I felt that they wanted us to jeopardize uh, our patients' welfare based on the system that was being created. So I retired in January 1st, 2017. And since then, I have tried to take care of my patients, my community, our country, our continent, our world, by educating and empowering people, by providing them information that the bought, what I call the bought-off lamestream fake media will never provide. Starting back actually in 2010, I was approached by someone, uh, Linda Hughes. Uh, she is the owner of uh, Wham Talk 1600. She's the only woman who owns a radio station in the United States. And she uh, uh, was a, 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 a trailblazer in the communications world. And she had approached me about uh, having a radio show. And I started Operation Freedom, which is a radio show which airs live out of Wham Talk 1600. It it can be listened to free of charge on my website, streamed live 
every Sunday from 2 to 5 Eastern at DaveJanda.com. And I've been doing that show since October of 2010. We go into geopolitics and economics and financial issues and, if you will, the climate change issue. We, we touch on a lot of different entities. But you see, I bring people to the show that I have known for 30 years based on my work in Washington and in being a healthcare policy advisor. Not that these administrations listen, but starting with the Reagan administration going through George H.W. Bush the first, Clinton Bush too. And, and that gets me to my focus in medicine for the 20, one of my five years of residency and the 27 years of being in private practice. See, when I was in my residency and completing my residency, I was focusing on treating people after they had sustained an injury. But when I started working as well in the emergency room and seeing people coming in through the emergency room, I started seeing a, a pattern of, of injuries, in particular in sports. And very, not just little, many, the fallacy of sports injuries are little bumps and bruises. Some can be, but the vast majority are major traumatic events, broken bones, dislocated joints, uh, issue, uh, events leading to arthritis down the line. Very severe, debilitating, costly events, not just in the short term, but in the long term. And I started to ask a very simple question. This is back in the late 1980s. I said to the professors, I said, well, you know, we're really good at treating these people after they were injured, but why don't we try to prevent their injuries from occurring? Well, here's the interesting thing, and this is where medicine was then and actually still is today. And I could give you a lot of diplomatic answers why that's the case, why prevention isn't focused on, uh, pushed to the forefront. I could give you a lot of diplomatic answers, Teresa, but uh, the Reader's Digest short version uh, and politically incorrect answer is, is the reason why prevention isn't pushed in, in Western medicine is because there's no money in it. You see, if you prevent people from getting injured, in my case, which I started to look at, Fewer people go to the doctor and fewer people go to the hospital. And the insurance companies don't get payment, so, which is true. So many people think, and I did it as well at, at the beginning and for a period of time afterwards, initially, that well, what, the insurance company should love this type of approach of prevention. And I never could really get an answer out of the insurance companies of why they never pushed prevention. I eventually did. But before we get to that point, I started pursuing not only doing research on operations to help people after they were injured, but I started pushing on the, why don't we prevent people from getting injured in the first place? And there were a number of professors at the University of Michigan that backed me on this. There were some that were more ambivalent, and then there were some that were actually not very happy about it. But the vast majority were very supportive of my efforts. And I started to focus on prevention, and in particular, we were seeing a, a particular injury pattern in a particular group of people in sports that the injuries were very severe, and there were huge numbers. So we launched on a study, and the study, long story short, uh, we found a way to prevent 95% of these devastating injuries and save 99% of the healthcare costs associated with those injuries. And it started to get a fair amount of attention, and I got contacted by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And they said, hey, you know, can you ship all your data down to us? We want to review it. 
and see how this translates nationally. And we did. And they said, you know, your data does hold up. And here's the interesting thing. If we just talk about this one change that you implement, it will lead to the prevention of 1.7 million people every year in the United States from being injured and save $2 billion, with a B, $2 billion in healthcare costs every year. Well, the interesting thing, in addition to those statistics, Teresa, is the fact that we spent $1,000 once, and it saves $2 billion every year and prevents 1.7 million people from coming into the doctor or going to the hospital. Well, that got a fair amount of attention in the networks at the time. This is the late 80s. And in particular, Ronald Reagan, who was at the end of his presidency at that point, saw a report on it in the spring of 1988 and contacted me. And, and, and I was asked if I would be interested in coming to Washington and working on healthcare policy with Surgeon General C. Everett Koop, who's a retired surgeon, who, pediatric surgeon, phenomenal surgeon, phenomenal physician, but also a great healthcare policy advocate. And we worked together along with a number of other folks and developed some ideas about way to make healthcare more available, more affordable, and more quality oriented. I won't get into the politics of this at all, because I know that's not where you want to go. But but the point is, is that we presented information based on prevention and wellness initiatives to President Reagan, but told him that this is really going to upset big medicine like the AMA, because people aren't going to go to the doctor. This is going to upset the pharmaceutical industry because if people don't get hurt, they don't take medicine. And this is going to upset the, the insurance industry because they don't like prevention-related issues. And his response was, well, if it helps people, I don't care. Just do what's right. Puts a feather in his cap. And, I'm, and this is not a political statement. I am just reporting what had transpired. So Reagan was very supportive. Now, this is toward the end of his presidency, as I said, and then George H.W. Bush comes in and we present the same information to him and his response was drastically different. We can't go there. We get a lot of, we get, we get a lot of money from the insurance industry, pharmaceutical industry, and big medicine, and we don't want to upset them, which was, by the same token, the same response we got from the Clinton administration and the George W. Bush administration. Obama, we didn't even approach it because he was all about government-run health care and he was not about empowerment of people. It was about empowerment of government. So this is when I learned early on, Teresa, that there was really one political party. And this right-left business is all meant to divide and conquer the, the populace. That really the response we got from everybody other than Reagan was the same, whether it's a Republican in the Bushes in there or a Democrat in Clinton in there. It was all the same. We don't want to upset the big money. Right. You know, I, it, it seems to me when you bring that up, I mean, the way I've kind of come to look at it, and this is uh, leading to a few things down the line for unresolved, but the way I've come to look at it is there's really no political paradigm. It's just a matter of are you a conservative believing Christian with morals or are you pushing for um something else and that something else tends to be a one world government but the problem that i see is that they tend to they tend to you know a, a, go, a one world government with the, with the goal of making the state god okay and and the way i've i've kind of come to is it doesn't matter whether you paint yourself red or blue a lot of times you're still aiming for the same thing i agree and and and, and here's the one thing i learned early on from reagan was the right-left axis is theater. It's fraud, and it's meant to divide and conquer. 
the real axis, and this is what Reagan taught, and it goes to something you just discussed, the real axis that's being worked on is the up-down axis, up being freedom and down being oppression. This political right-left thing is meant to divide the populace, to distract the populace from what's really going on. And what's really going on is an up-down axis. And it's really, really, when you, when you filter it all down, and you've alluded to this, it's about good versus evil. Fre- freedom being good and oppression being evil. This is what it boils down to. And I believe I ended up getting put in this position by a higher power of, and I, and I don't mean a government higher power when I say that, uh, because of something that happened early in this prevention process. And, and, and this is what I think you um, uh, heard in the Hagman interview. In 1988, Reagan had asked me to come to Washington, as I, as I stated. At the time, my wife and I had been married for several years. We had a baby daughter uh, in August of 1988. I was working at that time. I, 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 my career was kind of in a fork in the road. Was I going to go on the treatment side and develop out from a research side, research operations to help people, or was I going to go on the prevention side? And I was kind of in a quandary where I was going to go with this, even though we had had some very positive results with the prevention stuff and a lot of media exposure, Today's Show, Good Morning America, all that stuff. But I, I was at a crossroads. Where was it? Because I was being torn in two different directions, where to go. And I, and I couldn't do both. So you got to go one or the other. And where was I going to go? And then something really um, terrible happened in our family. And that is our baby daughter, who was about a year old, became critically ill. Uh, her bone marrow uh, stopped functioning. And the concern was, was that either she had developed a cancer of her bone marrow, or she had been exposed to a virus that had dis- was in the process of destroying her bone marrow, both being bad, but the worst being the cancer, potentially. She was admitted to the University of Michigan Children's Hospital, my children's hospital, and my friends, who were very capable physicians, were taking care of her. She was getting worse by the day, almost by the hour, actually. Uh, lab values were getting worse and worse. Bone marrow was functioning less and less. The concern was that um, she was a setup uh, for a massive infection, which would kill her because her bone marrow was so badly affected. And then at oh, one point, our, my friends came to us and said, look, we've tried everything and nothing's working. We're very concerned that she will get a small infection, which will lead to a very bad infection very quickly because her immune system is so depressed. And this will kill her, and we can't stop this. And uh, she continued to get worse. And then at one point, she ended up losing consciousness. At that point, our, my, our friend said, we don't have any other options here. Uh, we, just have to, we just have to watch. So at that point, I did what thousands and thousands of parents do in children's hospitals across the country, across the world every day. I... Um, took her in my arms, even though she was not responsive. And I said a prayer and I asked God to take my life and not hers. As I said this prayer, I heard a voice and the only person in the room was my dad. And it wasn't his voice. And the voice said, 
establish an institute focused on prevention. And I opened my eyes and I looked at my dad and I go, did you just say something? And he said, no, but if you heard something, follow it. I closed my eyes and I finished the prayer. About two or three minutes later, Allison opened her eyes and started to talk again. Over the years, Teresa, many people have said to me, why, why do you do what you do, Dave? Because what I then did, Teresa, is the next day, I didn't know how to do any of this. I mean, I, I knew how to do research, but I didn't know how to establish an institute, how to, I didn't, you know, I, I just started, you know, it was divine intervention. I just started taking steps that I thought were right to establish this institute because I was going to follow through on what I was told. And I started on that and we founded the Institute for Preventative Sports Medicine the next day. You know, this happened on J- July 28, 1989, and we started on it July 29, 1989. And I, I for many, many years, uh, I, I still donate my time to the Institute, but for, uh, I, you know, 30 years, I put 40 hours a week in the Institute, not getting paid, not, you know, just doing, doing research to help kids, to help, help adults, help everybody on the prevention side and meld that into healthcare policy changes. And, and we started on that and we got a great board of directors together when people said we couldn't do it. And we got an advisory board of former professional Olympic athletes together that people said we would never be able to do. And when I founded the Institute, people said, oh, Dave, people don't care about prevention. You're, you're, you know, this won't, last a, this won't last a month. Well, we're 30 years into it, and it's still in existence. And we're still doing st- getting information out to help people. Well, it seems but, to me a lot more people care about prevention nowadays compared to uh, being reliant and dependent on the typical medical company. I completely agree with you. I think you're absolutely right. But many people over the years, Teresa, have said, you know, Dave, you, you put all this time into the Institute. You never get a lot of positive feedback on it. You give these companies that you show their products are not effective at helping people and preventing injuries. You, they threaten to sue you. They threaten to harm you. Uh, at one point, we had to get protection for my wife and daughters because people were so upset with me about telling the truth and publishing our studies about how product, some products were effective and some problems products weren't. And wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, who was trying, who, who was endangering your family? Well, we've had a number of threats from a number of different entities, but in particular, the ones that uh, were pretty vocal about it were uh, certain individuals and corporations in the sports world. And, we show that their products and it, it you know cost to cost them a lot of money because we expose their marketing as being fraudulent and that in fact their products wouldn't help people and when that happened the first thing they in all of our studies that we do are peer reviewed and published in the medical journals so it's not you know we're not submitting it to some lay journal better homes and gardens to get out there yeah we do interviews with whatever homes and gardens and the like, but we don't publish our research there. It's published in the medical journals, So it has scientific scrutiny and review. But when we would come out with these studies, these companies would say, if you talk to the press or you talk to the public about your findings, we're going to sue you. And my response was, what are you going to do? Sue me for telling the truth? You know, bring it on. Well, they never would. So then when that didn't work, they would threaten me. You know, Janda, people like you that have a big mouth that uh, go around telling the public about stuff, People like you don't last very long. Bad things happen to people like you. 
And when the threats didn't stop me, they thought that, well, then what we'll do is we'll threaten Janda's wife and kids. So at one point, we had to have protection for my wife and kids so that they had protection when my wife went to work and back from work and while she was at work. And the same thing with my kids. They had to have protection going to school, coming back from school, when they're outside playing, when, you know, they're at, I mean, so, but these are the steps you have to take to protect yourself when you're telling the truth against people that are evil. <laughs> it, it gets back to this good versus evil battle. I find that I find that particular paradigm very interesting because a lot of people want to say, well, there's not really such a thing as good versus evil. It's all in how you think. Well, you know what? People that say that are either they don't have their antenna up about what's going on or they just don't want to acknowledge it. And it really it also goes back to they don't want to acknowledge God either. Well, that's that, that's a big that's a big part. You know, one of the things you find is that there are people that want to live in their cocoon and they don't want to acknowledge many of these other things because then they might be actually forced to do something about it. Or accountable. <laughs> right. And, 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 there's a, and that's right. And accountability is a big thing. And, you know, one of the ways in which the criminals of the world get away from being held accountable is perpetuating people into this thought process of it's better for me just to ignore it. I, I don't want to know, put, put, you know, I hear no evil, see no evil, you know, speak no evil. It's, it's really, we have to acknowledge the problems. It, it's for example, the hardest thing in my career as a physician and surgeon was to tell somebody that they had cancer. This is a gross generalization, but it's fairly, it, it, it holds water. When a physician looks at a lab results and x-rays, and you say, oh, we have a problem here, and it appears to be cancer. Well, there's two things you can do as a physician. You can ignore the results and go in and tell that patient, your lab results came back and they're fine. Now, that's an easy conversation to have, right? But am I really helping that patient if I lie to them by doing that? No. The harder conversation is to say, oh, my gosh, bad, these are really nasty results. Okay, let's do it gently, let's, but we have to tell the truth to the patient. Let's tell them what we got going here. And, and it's interesting. When you present that information to a patient, and this is 27 years' experience as a practicing orthopedic surgeon in addition to five years as a, in my residency, there's two reactions you get when you tell somebody bad news. One is the person looks at you and goes, I don't believe you, which is fine, but I don't believe you. This is wrong. I'm, I am going to live my life the way I want to live my life, and I am just, I am fine. Goodbye, and walks out of the office. Now, I can tell you that person will be dead in a box in six months. But the second reaction that you get is where when you tell the patient about what's going on gently, but honestly, they look at you and go, okay, what, what do we do to battle this? Those are the people who survive. So, Teresa, when we present information about whether it's cancer or whether it's bad news about a healthcare system that's being proposed by government or whatever, you're always going to get the same reaction. You don't know what you're talking about. You're wrong. I'm out of here. Or an acknowledgement of, show me the results. Tell me where they're bad. 
Tell me what we need to do to fix it. When I hear that, the thing that keeps coming back to my mind is where we are commanded in scripture to speak the truth in love. I mean, and and it, it doesn't say, uh, you know, just don't tell people what they're problem is that they're that they are uh, uh sinful that they need it that they need a savior i mean if we do that then the bible is very clear their blood is on our hands it seems to me we're talking about the same exact principle here we are and this might, might sound uh, blasphemous but there are many people that are involved in some of these large ministries the heads of these ministries that love to tell people Everything's fine. Everything's good. The prosperity gospel. Right? But aren't willing to tell a patient or the public, if you will, just like we would tell a patient they have cancer, aren't willing to tell the public that there, is, there are some issues. There is a cancer in society. They're not willing to do that. They just want to stick with the prosperity side. Uh, or as I like to call it, the bubblegum the, the, uh, bubble gospel. And which really isn't a gospel at all. Just like a doctor would sit there and go, no, I'm not going to, I don't want to hurt this guy's feelings. I'm not going to tell him. It's, but it's not helpful to him. See, in the short term, it might make everybody feel better to the point where they're fine paying your office visit bill, right? To come in and get the good news, even though it was false news, or whether it's to make a donation to an organization because they're just giving you a bunch of great stuff. Great information. Great, great, everything's everything's fine, and this is what part of the battle is. Part of, I believe, my role is not to tell people all negative information, but part it is to provide great information, good information, and positive information. But as I see my role in 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 the world and life, is also to provide information to people that they might not want to hear, but it's what they need to know. To become further educated, empowered, safe, healthier. So are you familiar and are you a proponent of um, alternative medicine with people like Ted Brower from uh, Health Masters and other organizations like that? I, I'm not, not specifically with that organization because I'm not familiar with their work, but I am, I am a proponent of alternative medicine. I am. I, I do believe there are other than straight Western medicine. There are other alternative means of medical intervention that I believe can be very, very beneficial. And 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 the caveat on that is if you're going to get involved on an alternative treatment, make sure there's peer-reviewed scientific information on the treatment you're looking at to make sure that there has there's some legs to it. Now, for let me give you an example with myself. I have really bad arthritis in my neck and spine. Terrible. A common to problem in orthopedic surgeons because you're lifting patients, you're moving, you're left. Yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're in a position over the operating table where you're hunched over. Neck and back troubles are fairly, very common, I would say, in orthopedic surgeons. But I had very, very severe problems with arthritis. Plus, I have this family history of very severe arthritis. So at one point, several years ago, I started having significant problems. And as a surgeon, you can't take pain medicine. So I was relegated to taking anti-inflammatories and going to therapy and icing, and, and I wasn't getting better. And it got to a point where my colleagues said, well, Dave, we think you're going to have to have surgery on your neck. 
And I'm like, oh man, I don't really want to do that. And well, yeah, there's really, you really don't have a choice. Well, uh, one of the anesthesiologists said to me one day, you know, Dave, uh, you're in a lot of pain. It's obvious. Why, why don't you try acupuncture? He said, well, I go, do you really think that's going to work? He goes, you know, I have really severe arthritis in my back and I tried acupuncture, but you got to go to the right person. And uh, this guy showed me some studies on this kind of stuff. This guy is a PhD, got his PhD here in the United States, got his MD degree in China. He's from a long line of Chinese acupuncturists in China. This guy is big time. People flying from all over the country for him to take care of. Because I think you should give it a try. I said, well, I go, what do I have to lose? The other alternative is to have surgery. I'll give this a try. I've tried everything else. And I'll tell you something, Teresa, within uh, two weeks, my symptoms were almost gone. I went back to see the neurosurgeon who was, had recommended me having surgery. He examined me. He goes, hey, Dave, you're, you're like symptom-free. He goes, your exam is like normal. I go, yeah. He goes, what do you do? <laughs> I said, I, w- I went to this doctor. He was an acupuncturist. He goes, yeah, I'm really familiar with his work. He does a great job. I go, why don't you tell me about this? He goes, because I didn't think you'd do it. He goes, I tell this to other docs and they won't do it. He goes, I'm glad you did it because he goes, if, he goes, uh, and, and to this day, and that was, that was uh, six years ago. And, and I, you know, and so the, so the point is, and I'm a big, and I'm a big supporter and I have a guest on, on my radio show, Operation Freedom. One of the guests I have us on is Dr. Peter Glidden, who's one of the best nutritional experts in the world. In fact, in fact, when I started the radio show, I would, in addition to doing the geopolitical stuff, the economic stuff, financial stuff, the climate change stuff, the, you know, I'd also, I'd also do the prevention stuff and the healthcare policy stuff segments on my show. But the one missing factor was the nutritional side. And for years, I had looked for, I don't know, products, people, companies that would, would provide high value products to people to help them on a nutritional. And I did all this research on these different companies and products and oh, yeah, yeah. And I, tr- I was trying to myself to see how what I kind of affect. I, I was essentially the human guinea pig and nothing really seemed to be legit. And then I came across these, these group of, of or, this doc, this Peter Glidden and, uh, and, and these products that my gosh, and the testing, the 25 years of testing behind it. And I went to the research labs that did the testing. And, and I mean, I, I checked. And, it, and so one of the things we did with our radio show, we have DaveJanda.com, where people can listen to the radio show every Sunday, 2 to 5 Eastern. It's live. But we also have a tremendous amount of content on the site. We have a public side. We have a subscription side at 30 cents a day. Data people have to sign up for the subscription side, obviously, if they don't want. But but the public side, we put a lot of information. But we also have a sister site called Operation Freedom Health, where we have YouTubes and we have discussions and printed information. We have actually a holistic nurse that's available by email and phone to discuss nutritional issues because we wanted to add the nutritional side to the prevention model as well. And so I'm a big proponent of nutritional supplements in order to enhance people's health and wellness. I'm a big proponent of such entities as acupuncture. They have been clinically studied and, 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 and have shown to have positive results. So I, I'm a big, you mentioned long answer to a short question. I'm a big proponent of alternative means of, of health and, and the like. But the caveat there 
is before folks should entertain the, the uh, particular treatment model, whatever it might be, or whether it's standard medicine and Western medicine, you, you need to go to the provider you're speaking to and say, okay, provide me the medical studies and the information behind your recommendation. A lot of people do not do that. Right. But, but here's the thing. If, if you trust that doc and you know that, and, and, and the other thing is word of mouth. If you know a number of people in your community that have treated with that doc and they've had very good results, to me, that's a big positive. Okay. So yeah, ask them for the information, ask them for why they do it, ask them for their track record, ask them for their, their results, ask them, but, 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 but make sure that, you know, and talk to your friends, you know, word of mouth is extremely important as a way of finding out about treatments, providers, and the like. As I, as I sit here and think, I mean, I think because um, I started using some alternative stuff, like I use very heavily every day I take a dose of colloidal silver. Every single day I take my colloidal silver because I know what it has done to my body. And I, I mean, I used to be like, you know, getting cold, getting sick. And this stuff, I mean, it, it, it radically has made it so I'm not sick as often. I mean, I'm still in pain and I'm still taking the anti-inflammatories and I haven't found something to fix that problem yet. But at least on the health side, on the collateral silver side, I'm not dealing with, dealing with it nearly as much what I used to. And a lot of people, they ask me, why are you taking that? I'm like, because it helps. Mm-hmm. I agree. I think, I think colloidal silver is one of the most effective things to take on a regular basis. I completely agree. Wow. I mean, you know, there are so many places. So let me ask you this. If someone were to say, okay, my medical situation is a wreck. I have listened to the Western people and they're not helping me. Is there any really any hope for fixing the medical policy or for citizens to actually get quality medical care? Well, I, I think there is in a sense that if we look at, um, for example, if, if folks are looking for individual practitioners to help them, I encourage folks to look at, uh, and, and if they've tried through their internal medicine doc and their family doc and uh, they're just not getting satisfaction, there is something called integrative health practitioners. Integrative health docs are docs that are MDs, but they've had a special training in more of a holistic approach a more nutritional approach to organ systems and to disease states. So I encourage folks to Google in their area, uh, integrative health specialists in their area. Now, that's from the treatment of or, 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 or hands-on medical practitioner side. As far as healthcare policy, I believe that it, it's not very difficult for us to create a healthcare system that's more available, more affordable, and more quality-oriented. But in order to do that, we have to take out the role and diminish the role of government bureaucrats who have no functional medical knowledge that are trying to implement healthcare policy and treatments. And we have to take the role of the insurance industry and pharmaceutical industry out of it. In other words, what I am saying is we have to take the big money out. If we take the big money out, we can solve this problem. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but right now with the implementation of Obamacare, and I won't go into the politics of Obamacare, but I'm going to say this, is there is an independent insurance 
guru in the state of Kansas. His name is David Powell. I've had him on my show a number of times. And through information through David Powell and through information that we've developed in healthcare policy, you could get rid of Obamacare and implement a healthcare system that's more available, more affordable, and more quality oriented and diminish people's premium and ins- premiums that they're paying for insurance by 770%. You could do that within 24 hours. And the, the only thing blocking it is big medicine, big insurance, and big pharmaceutical companies. Which explains why the Republicans would not vote to repeal it because they were probably getting the money from it. If you look at the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, and if you look, <clears throat> he talked about implementing Ryan Care. Ryan Care was a disaster because it was essentially Obamacare, and they were going to put Trump's name on it and call it Trump Care. It was a sellout to the insurance industry. The insurance industry, this is a point of fact, and I'm not going to get into the details on, our show, on the show today, but we have this all laid out. The insurance industry wrote Obamacare. They have profited by tens of billions of dollars with the implementation of Obamacare. I know the lamestream fake media says the insurance companies were hurt by Obamacare. That's the case. Why have insurance company stock prices gone up between 600 and 700% since the implementation of Obamacare if it was so deleterious to the insurance companies? The point is, is that the Republicans, and, you bring, and you're right on target on this, when they brought up this alternative model, Ryan Care, which was going to be called Trump Care, was no different than Obamacare. It empowered government. Okay? If you look at Paul Ryan, who was pushing this, if you look at where the, the money for his political campaigns, for his political survivorship has come from, the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry. Paul Ryan's wife is a former insurance health insurance lobbyist. Oh, that's not a conflict of interest at all. Just saying. No. Right. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, when you look at both sides of the aisle, this is why they're really one party. I call them the Republicrats. They, they all get huge amounts of money from the insurance industry and from the pharmaceutical industry and big medicine to keep the status quo in place. And the only way this changes is this is what we try to do with our show as well. Educate and empower people. Confront members of the House and Senate and saying, look, we know what you're up to. We know what you're doing. We know what this is about. If you don't get behind free market health care reform, health savings accounts, direct primary care, letting ins- making insurance companies compete rather than collude, selling insurance across state lines, uh, high risk pools so that you don't have this, the, this problem of people having disease states, pre-existing conditions, and not being able to pay. If you need to do, all people have, we, you need to implement free market health care reform. And if you don't, we are going to work to making sure that you do not keep sitting in that really nice leather chair that we're paying for. We are going to get you removed from office. We're going to go after people that support what we want in the primaries so you don't even make it through the primaries. And you talk about make, making people change. They, they, they get it. They understand. There's only so much money they can get from lobbies. And, so, and, and once the public catches on to an issue and what needs to be done, they might not be happy about it, but they'll go along with it because they know if they don't, they're out. A lot of times I focus a lot on the spiritual side and answering life's most difficult questions. And to me, this is an a, a unresolved issue. It's if your health is, is deteriorating and 
if we have a system that doesn't work to prevent the issues, then to me, that is an egregious unresolved issue that needs to be solved. And so that's why I brought uh, Dr. Agenda on. And Doc, as medical issues come up that I think would be good for the unresolved family to know, would you be willing to come back on and address them? Yeah, if, if, it, if, if I can lend some insight to to the issue at hand, I'd be happy to. Well, that is, that is just wonderful. You know, guys, I, I, I truly believe we, we need to not only deal with the unresolved issues, dealing with the soul and dealing with the, you know, is God real, which, well, you know, you guys know where I stand, whether you're a Christian or you're an atheist, you know where I stand. But I have done my very best to attack every single issue that has been brought up with with due diligence and i truly believe that this is a subject that we need to talk about this is a subject we need to deal with you may not agree with it you may not agree with what the doctor said but do your own research and do your own findings i guarantee you he's going he's got he's he said some things today that i'm going to go back and research and check so doctors thank you so much for coming on the show well, I thank you very much for all that you do, Teresa, and your team does in trying to educate and empower people and to really work on the unresolved issues in life. We, uh, the, uh, your efforts uh, are uh, helping many people uh, have a better life. You've been listening to the Unresolved Life Podcast. To catch all our past shows, go to unresolved.life. That's unresolved.life.